0: Let me share with you this evening how much I deeply appreciate your being here, and as you're turning with me to the 12th chapter of Hebrews, let me also say a personal word of appreciation to Carlos Odom. I haven't come to argue with you this evening, because the man with the argument is always at the mercy of the man with the experience, and you've already heard a man with the experience. And I praise the Lord for that testimony. By the way, if I could share with you just one little intimate sidelight here that you probably would be interested in. Uh, Carlos asked if uh, Wilson Beardsley or somebody on the staff could come over and help him get dressed this evening before he came over here. Wilson went over, walked in the door. Carlos laughed and said, Here, Wilson, let me help you get dressed. I thought you folks would appreciate that. As I was listening to Carlos, God spoke to me as strongly as if you were to come up to me and speak to me audibly, and affirmed to me that in these next few moments, he wants us to direct our attention to the first two verses of the 12th chapter of Hebrews, And so if you will, please look with me at those two verses, and I want you to think with me about what to do when the running gets rough. What to do when the running gets rough. I want to read these verses with you, and then I want us to pray together. We'll spend a few moments examining what God has to say to us in these next few moments. The author of Hebrews says, and so... Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm going to ask you if you will please to join with me as we pray and if you will remember God has you seated where you are for a very special reason. It would be a shame, would it not, for those around you to have to come to Jesus tonight in spite of you. What a great testimony it would be you could say that the folks around you came to know Jesus tonight, had a real worship experience because God was so mightily at work in your own life. We are not here this evening by accident, by chance, but by the sovereign work of God. And you know, it causes me to pause a moment when I realize that God began to arrange the circumstances of human history Literally thousands of years ago In order to make it possible for each person who is here tonight to be here tonight Now God didn't go to all that trouble so that you could come and waste your time or twiddle your thumbs for a few moments He's gone to all that trouble because he has something he wants to say to you. He already has spoken to my heart and I'm sure to yours As we examine this passage of scripture in these next few moments I trust that God will open your spiritual eyes and ears And reveal to you spiritual truths that will transform your life. Now let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how we pray. Thanking you for this blessed opportunity to be here. Father, we praise you for the testimony we've heard. Thank you, Lord, for Carlos. Lord, we are rebuked when we think of how little we do with what we have and we see how much others do with what they have. Father, how I pray that your Holy Spirit will somehow so move in upon us tonight that there would not be a single life, a single heart unchanged by the time of the benediction this evening. Lord, we realize that the devil would like to frustrate, thwart, and confuse the efforts of your Holy Spirit. But we know, Lord, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so we take authority over Satan, we bind him in the name of Jesus Rebuke him according to the word of God and because the precious shed blood on the cross of Calvary gives us the right and the authority and the power to do so. And Lord, I just pray that you'd surround this building with the mightiest battalion of angels that you have to do battle with the demons of the air who would seek to destroy all that you want to do. Open, Lord, our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' precious, wonderful name. Amen. As I listened to Carlos give his testimony, I had the opportunity, as a minister so often does because of where he's seated, of looking out at your faces and seeing how God was speaking to you, ministering not only in your hearts, but physical countenance, your physical countenance, reflected something of what God was saying to you. And you know, it's uh, awfully difficult to listen to a man like Carlos and to see him without saying, bless his heart. Poor old Carlos, withered body, bless his heart. But you know, there are some of you here this evening who may not have a withered body, but you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've got a withered home. Frankly, I'd rather have the withered body. You know that when you get back home this evening, it's not going to be fun at all. You know that you and your wife, or you and your husband, or you and your kids, or you and your parents have not had an opportunity, or if you've had an opportunity, you have not shared any in months of what God is doing in your life, and God may not be doing much at all. It's hard to get along with each other. It's been a long time since a civil word was spoken. Every word you speak may be a word of criticism, caustic, critical, harsh. It could be that you don't even talk in your home. You spend all day at work talking. You stay home with the kids all day, screaming at the kids. And the truth of the matter is you've got a withered home, maybe not a withered body, but a withered home. And I know there's some of you here this evening who are like that. You'd say, you know, that's the truth. I. I I just sometimes am tempted to toss in the towel. I'm just ready to quit, ready to throw up my hands. The running is so rough, I'm just ready to quit. Some of you perhaps don't have a withered home or a withered body, but you know that um, your moral integrity withered a long time ago. And you've tried so often, coming down the aisle, saying, well, if I can just get right with God and straighten things out, and yet you've turned around and walked out the door knowing that that same sin which was going to cause you to compromise your moral and spiritual integrity, was waiting just around the corner, and it was going to get you. And sure enough, it did. And maybe you've tried and you've made resolutions and you've said, Lord, I'll never do it again, and you've cried and you've prayed and you've cried and you've prayed, but you always have. And maybe this evening you're saying, you know, the running is so rough for me, I'm just going to throw in the towel. I am ready to say I quit. I'm through. Oh, no, I'm not through being a Christian. No, I'm not through going to church. I'm not through singing these hymns, but I just give up on the battle. I'm through. Some of you men here and ladies who feel that way about your jobs, right? You're tired of being beat down, tired of being shoved down, tired of being overlooked, tired of being criticized, tired of where you work, tired of the people with whom you work. There's absolutely nothing happy about your life at work. And as you drive to work in the morning, there's not a song in your heart. You go to work... In order to take a vacation, you take a vacation in order to maintain your sanity so you can work at a job you do not like. You know that's the truth, and as you fight the rush hour of traffic, you say, "I'm just ready to throw in the towel. I am going to give up." Some of you here this evening who may not have a withered home. Things may not be withered as far as your moral or spiritual integrity is concerned. Maybe things are going all right at the job but you're tired of trying to be the kind of Christian that you know you're supposed to be. And it's awfully hard, isn't it? You come, you pray, you sing, you work, you're absolutely afraid, scared to death to say no when anyone asks you to do anything. But you'd be honest enough to say, you know, the truth of the matter is, it is a drudge to me. If there was some way that I could get out of some of that stuff and and still maintain an image of being a dedicated Christian, I'd do it. I'd just junk about half of it. I am ready to throw in the towel when I give up. There's some of you parents here this evening who are ready to give up on your children. There's some of you children here this evening who are ready to give up on your parents. Some of you husbands, your wives. Some of you wives, your husbands. You're ready to give it up? Some of you college students are saying, you know, I don't think I want to stay in college anymore. I am so sick of this. It is just a rat race. Why do I need college anyway? Just because everybody says it's the thing to do, why do I need to stay in college? I don't care about those courses. I don't care about these professors. Everybody on the campus is just a hypocrite. I am through. I am ready to throw in the towel. Now let me ask you, do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that way? Well, this evening I want to share with you some principles that will revolutionize your life when the running gets rough, when things really get hard. And the author of Hebrews shares them with us in these first two verses, and I want to share them with you very briefly in these next few moments. I would suggest to you this evening, if you're ready to quit, those of you who are ready to go home and say to your husband or your wife, I'm walking out, I'm leaving, it's no good. It's obvious there's no love here. The kids have grown up, they're gone, we're not going to hurt anybody, let's call it quits. For those of you who are ready to walk into your boss tomorrow and say, I'm through, I'm leaving, and maybe the 10th or 12th or 15th or 20th job you've left in your lifetime, just like that. For you college students who are ready to go home and say, Mom, Dad, I'm quitting. When the semester's over, I'm through. In fact, I don't even think I'll wait till the semester's over. I'm going to withdraw while passing, if that good. I would suggest to you that there's a great principle here and it is that you'll never gain courage from cowards. Just mark it down. When you're ready to toss in the towel, when the running really gets rough, you will never gain courage from cowards. Now, the author of Hebrews says that life is like some kind of athletic competition, in this case, perhaps like a foot race. And he envisions a great grandstand, and those of us who are left alive are running the race, And in the grandstand are those who have gone on before us. He's listed their names, many of them, and then called them in large groups later on in the chapter of, of the 11th chapter of Hebrews. He's mentioned several groups, those who subdued the mouths, stopped the mouths of lions, subdued kingdoms and powers, those who died by the sword. We're not even worthy of them. But now the grandstands are full of those who've gone on, those who've run and gone on. And you know the interesting thing about that grandstand and the crowd in it is that every person in the crowd is a winner, a winner. Have you ever thought about that? You know, I, like, I don't get to go to football games nearly as much as I'd like to, but I love to watch football. And uh, invariably, I don't care if I take 40 people from our church, all the deacons in our church, invariably when I go to the football game, and put all of my friends around me, the guy who sits next to me is a drunk. Now, I don't know how that happens. You, uh, Brother Jake, that happen to you? And not just a drunk drunk, but a sloppy drunk. The kind of drunk that, that, that drinks all over you as well as all over himself. And you spend part of your game, you know, passing this down, passing the change back, wiping this off, trying to hold him up. Now, let me tell you something about that guy. And I, this is, I sit by this guy. You know, I, I always thought it was just one person, but the, apparently the world's full of them. When he was in high school, toward the end of the season, his team played a very crucial game. He was the quarterback. The ball was snapped to him. If they had scored, they would not only have won the game, they would have won the city championship. But you know what he did when the ball was snapped? He dropped the ball. The other team recovered, ran for a touchdown on the next play, and they lost. Now here I am at the ball game, trying to enjoy it. It's a crucial game. Last few minutes, everything's at stake. The conference championship, a bold bid. The quarterback goes out of the hut, comes out of the huddle. They line up, it becomes obvious. Apparently, what kind of play they're going to pull off? And this guy next to me invariably stands up and says, You dummy! You idiot! Oh, no, let's get another coach. That's the stupidest play I have ever seen in my life. You will never win a game playing like that. That is crazy. You can't play like that. But someplace in that stadium, and I've never gotten to sit by this fellow, never even met him, But there's a guy who, when he was in high school, was in the same kind of situation. The ball was snapped to him. He took it, handed it to the back, who ran through the slot. They scored, won the city, won everything. And he stands up and begins to yell at the top of his lungs, You can do it! That's it! You can win! Punch it across! Now the quarterback, bless his heart, has got an option. He can listen to this man who's beside me, or he can listen to the man who knows what winning is all about. What I hope he does is listen to the man who knows about winning by first-hand experience, not the individual who only knows what winning is not. Now let me draw you an analogy. It amazes me the kind of people to whom the average Christian turns for encouragement when he gets ready to quit, when he gets ready to toss in the towel, Things go bad in a Sunday school class. Do you think he goes up to the most successful teacher in Sunday school and says, I don't know what to do, and, and wants to hear that guy say, man, let me tell you how to do You know what he does? He finds somebody else who's just as miserable as him, himself, and he says, how are things with you? Oh, terrible. Well, great. They're terrible with me, too. Let's go down and talk about how terrible things are. <laughs> People whose homes on the rock are sitting up at night listening to Johnny Carson and Zsa, Zsa Gabor tell how to have a successful marriage. They don't know anything about a successful marriage except what it is not. As I mentioned last night, the computer boys have a term, GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. You cannot get out of a computer information that is any better, any more accurate than that which you put into a computer. Have you ever come home, men, and discovered that your wife was depressed? Nobody here ever done that? I guess we're the only ones <laughs> and yet as you sat down you said what's the matter did, you, did the food go bad today no dog run away no kids misbehave no perfect don't have any kids <laughs> everything's fine well uh, house catch on fire no wreck car no you had it hmm what's the matter I don't know I just I just feel bad. You know what you'd find out about that lady? She's had three hours of counseling by way of soap opera. (laughs) And you know the problem with a soap opera is that there are no real solutions. Just when they're having the wedding, I do, I love you and I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. And as they're walking out the aisle, the girl says, You didn't really say you were my uncle, did you? Married to my mother's first brother by my second cousin's husband? It amazes me, the people that we turn to for encouragement. People who are losers. You know why? We don't want to hear anybody who's done anything better than ourselves. We want to hear from people who are in the same miserable state that we are. Do you know why Israel spent 40 years? Now listen to this. You know why they spent 40 years in the wilderness? They sent 12 spies over, one spy representing each of the tribes. They went in at Kadesh Barnea, spied out the land of, of Canaan, came back, brought the exhibits A, B, and C, and they said we, we are not together on our report. We have a minority report and a majority report. Let's hear the minority report first. Joshua and Caleb, you guys don't seem to be able to get together with the others. What's your report? We think it's the greatest plan you can imagine. Man, look at this. Look at these grapes. Look at all this stuff. This is absolutely fantastic. That is the most beautiful land. If we could just have that piece of property, there is no telling what we could do over there we can reach the world from that piece of property. And God has said we can do it. There's no reason for us not to, right? Everybody said that's a good report, but let's hear the majority report. One of the men got up and said, Now we, uh, it's not that we don't like Joshua and Caleb, and it's not that we actually disagree with their report. They're right. It is a fantastic land. But, uh, The sons of Anak, you know, the Anakim were the giants. Goliath was a descendant of Anak. The sons of Anak are over there, and we are as small as grasshoppers in their sight. And we measure that land off, and you know, it's a virtual impossibility for us to take Canaan. We can't do that. There's no way for us to go there. Right, man, right, right. You can't take Canaan. Canaan, it's it's impenetrable. Have you seen Jericho? Mightiest walls. There's no way for us to take Canaan. And the people begin to say, hmm, Joshua and Caleb certainly couldn't be right. And they listened to whom? To the cowards. And the result was that they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Let me tell you something. You folks who are seated right here, you listen to Carlos Odom. Don't you go back and listen to the guy who says, Life is crummy, life is rotten, life doesn't hold anything in store for me, and God doesn't love me. Listen to a winner. You folks, listen to a winner. You people with withered homes, go find somebody who's got a home in which Christ is honored and glorified and find out firsthand what it is to succeed and why. You can't gain courage from cowards. I would suggest to you a second principle, and that is that you can't sin and win. You know, we don't usually take very much time to discover why we got get in the jams that we're in. But I tell you what, when the running gets rough, when you're ready to throw in the towel, when you're just ready to give up and say, I don't know what I can do about this job, about my home, about school, about my friends, my life is a mess. I don't know what I can do, I don't know how I can solve this problem, I'll guarantee you there is something wrong someplace, and usually is not something out there that needs changing, it is something in here that needs changing. My wife used to laugh. I'd come on, I'm not the kind of guy that, you know, runs around the house changing the furniture. That's a woman's job when I was in seminary every once in a while I'd come home and I'd say man don't you ever dust the top of the refrigerator look at this and I'd begin to you know sort of mess around dust it I don't normally dust the top of the refrigerator dust period but I'd wipe off the top of the refrigerator I'd go in and tell her that this carpet piece of carpet wasn't clean I'd go into the den and begin dragging the furniture around rearranging it and my wife would just sit there like that and she'd say uh, what time's your test tomorrow? How'd you know I had a test? Well, she said, uh, it's obvious you're not studying. It's obvious you're looking for some reason to, uh, to keep from studying. It's obvious you're dissatisfied with everything. Uh, how long have you known you were going to have your test? Oh, about three months. <laughs> Did a test or a paper? Well, a test and a paper. She could tell when I was dissatisfied with everything around me that really the problem was I was dissatisfied with myself. Isn't it interesting? He says, you know, when the running gets rough, look around you, the grandstand's full of winners, listen to them, not one of them is going to tell you that you can't do it. Every one of them are going to tell you that you can do it. But listen, there may be another problem. You can't sin and win. And so he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. Now notice he has two, two categories of sin there. First of all, he said, let us lay aside every weight. Obviously, you're not going to run a sprint with lead weights around your ankles and lead weights around your waist and with your sweatsuit on and a raincoat and two or of your heaviest shoes, you know. You're not going to run a race like that. You'd be ridiculous to do so. What doesn't that man do when he gets ready to run a race? He takes off everything except the bare minimum. Now, that's obvious, but isn't it interesting that he included also this little phrase, and the sin which so easily besets us. The sin which literally, it means, trips us up. Do you realize that a man could spend his lifetime training for the Olympics? He could know everything about running the specific race that he's supposed to run. He could spend hours every day training. He could be the most highly developed athlete in this world. He could have in practice broken every record imaginable. He could have in the pre-Olympic games won every race that he had run. But I have promised you, that no matter how highly trained he is, no matter how strong and thick the muscles are in his legs and in his body, no matter how much experience he has, a shoelace can keep that man from winning. An untied shoelace can keep that man from winning. And let me tell you something. The thing that has most of you here tonight defeated in your personal relationship with the Lord is not some ugly, dark, gross, immoral thing. That's obvious to you. If you've done it, you've probably confessed it. You've probably talked with somebody about it. It probably is heavy on your heart, and you don't need anybody to point it out to you. But generally, the thing that easily besets us is some little, small, shoelace sin. But it's a persistent little thing, isn't it? Every day, almost every moment of every day, there it is. It's got to be dealt with. There it is. Such a nagging, persistent little sin. It easily besets us just a shoelace, but it keeps us from winning. You know how, why it keeps us from winning? The Bible says the devil is the accuser. The devil is the accuser. Now here's what he does. First of all, he comes to you and he accuses God in your presence. God doesn't really mean that. You don't, you don't really think God... That's what the devil said to Adam and Eve. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall not surely die. You'll become as gods, knowing good and evil. And so he accuses God in your presence. And then you fall apart and you sin, that same little old persistent sin. Maybe some little secret sin, but it's a presumptuous sin perhaps. And then you know what the devil does? The devil goes to God and says, God, did you see that? Did you see what that kid did? And you call him your kid? Can you imagine him doing that? And then he comes back to you because by this time you're on your knees. You've got to get some solution. And he says... You don't really think you can pray, do you? I mean, how many times do you think that you're going to be able to ask God to forgive you? How often do you think God is going to put up with that sin? You remember what you prayed the last time you were on your knees? You said, Lord, I'll never do it again. Now, you've done it. Now, what do you think God's going to do? You think he's going to forgive you this time? No way, brother. Accuser is a good name, isn't it? Just a little sin but some of you have made shipwreck of your life over some little sin. And that sin has come in like a wedge and is driving you farther and farther and farther away from God. You cannot sin and win. Don't plan to live the victorious life while you allow and tolerate and look with allowance of any degree of sin. God hates sin. Sin cost him his son He cannot tolerate it. He cannot allow it, nor can you. You can't sin and win. But what I've said so far, really, are rather elementary principles which you knew already. Let me suggest a third one to you. Some of you who are really ready to quit. You're ready to throw it in and say, I'm through. You know what your problem is you haven't picked the right hero now that's not very homiletical that's not a very beautiful way to say this but it's exactly what i mean you never picked the right hero notice he says that as we run this race we are to look unto jesus He's the author, he's the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I almost...